Hello, my name is Jason Maurice Porter, and I'm here today with Noria, Mexico and Central America, the Violence Takes Place series. We're here again to focus on gender, geography, and gender-based violence, particularly violence against women in Mexico and Central America. And it's our distinct pleasure uh, to have with us today Andalusia Soloff, the author of Vivos se los llevaron, buscando a los um, 43 de Ayutzinapa. Um, they took they took them alive, looking for the 43 Ayutzinapa, a graphic novel illustrated by Marco Para and Anahi Galaviz. How are you doing today, Andalusia? How are things in Mexico City? Um, well, thanks for for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here and chatting with you. I did just get back. I was just working in Acapulco and in Tixla, and then actually just went uh, to Matamoros, and now back in Mexico City today. Um, and well, you know, here we are in times of pandemic, but things are definitely picking up in October, which is always like a busy month with conferences and workshops. And so I guess we have now all adjusted to this digital world, realizing that unfortunately we can't really see each other in person. So we got to We got to go on with the dialogue. So thanks for having me on. Of course, of course. And I'm sure we might hear more about how you've adjusted to the digital world because you are quite... Uh, adept at um, communicating on so many different platforms in so many different ways and presenting this graphic novel in such a timely manner um, is just another great example. So, wow, you're just coming from Acapulco, Tixla, and then you went to Tamaulipas, so you're all over the place. Before you even wrote this book, you were well known for your experience in Guerrero. Um, tell us a little bit about that in your work before um, um, you started getting into the work on Aistinapa. Sure. Well, I'm originally from New York City and I've been living and working in Mexico for the past 10 years. Um, and about eight years ago, I had traveled to Guerrero when there was a community media gathering. I used to work a lot more in community radio and community media. Um, and it was to help communities that were resisting um, mining concessions that were going to come into uh, the area they lived in and pretty much up uh, changed their whole way of life. And I remember uh, meeting with the community police, the crack um, in San Luis Acatlan, a uh, pueblo in Guerrero, um, with, uh, in the costa. And uh, I, that was like one of my first experiences with community media and with meeting people from all different, all across Guerrero. Um, and then since then, I think that was 2012, around there, um, I've had a close connection with Guerrero in two, 2011, two students from Ayotzinapa were killed when police opened fire on a protest. And I also traveled to, to Ayotzinapa to report on their deaths um, and was very intrigued by the school, this beautiful school with all these revolutionary murals uh, seemingly in the middle of nowhere and with these like very politically savvy students. Um, and so then uh, when the disappearance happened of, of in Iguala on September 26, 2014. Um, then I went to uh, Guerrero and I actually lived at Ayutzinapa School. And that is where I did a lot of the reporting, which then uh, eventually became the graphic novel Vivo Celestia Varon. Um, but also I have not only reported on the disappearance of the 43 students, also on 
other disappearances because unfortunately uh, hundreds if not thousands of people in Guerrero have been disappeared. And on a positive note, one of the beautiful things about working in Ayutinap is that I've gotten to know so many different uh, of the students that studied there and also of the journalists who reported on it. And so the students are from areas all over Guerrero and many of them have then but gone on to become teachers in other parts of the state and have invited me to visit them. And so by being able to know people and travel, I've been able to do lots of different uh, kinds of stories across Guerrero. And one of the ones that I've devoted the most time to, which uh, still has not come out, but is a documentary called Poppy Crash. Um, and this is because there's uh, two entire regions of Guerrero, both the Sierra, um, which is uh, one mountain region closer to Michoacán, and then another, the Montaña region, which is mountain region uh, closer to Oaxaca and Puebla. Um, and both of these regions, uh, one of the main crops and the main um, methods of survival for the people is growing poppy. But I uh, was very interested to know what happened when fentanyl um, was really uh, came on the market and that uh, replaced poppy. And so that this area where people relied on poppy production, what were they going to do when uh, they were before selling a kilo of poppy in around $1,200, which uh, really uh, helped improve the local economy of these uh, mostly very uh, poor communities, uh, indigenous communities and uh, isolated um, where there's very few crops actually grow uh, because they're so high in the mountains and fairly cold. And uh, and then all of a sudden it went down to $150. So I wanted to explore what happens to uh, people. This is similar to the investigation that Noria did um, about this topic. And I uh, focused on three stories of uh, one young woman who migrated uh, to work in as a jornalera, um, a day laborer in the camps in northern Mexico, uh, picking grapes and leaving her small children behind. Um, one man who was a former migrant in uh, New York and lived actually close to where I grew up. Um, we connected over that. And then he is still trying to make a living uh, growing both uh, poppy and corn. And then one man who uh, left behind the poppy world once he could no longer uh, live off of it, tried to go to the United States, was deported, tried to work as whatever kind of jobs and really didn't work out and eventually entered the world of organized crime and is now a hitman. So my documentary documents these three stories. It should come out soon on The Intercept. And then hopefully uh, next year, a longer version will come out and, and hit the film festival circuit. Um, so that's one of the other uh, main stories that I focused on. And also uh, working in the mountain region, uh, finding out more about forced marriages and, and child marriages of young women who are forced to marry. And it's a story that I think is very uh, delicate to report on because I think it's often that uh, people like myself from, you know, from the United States or Western world or white privilege come in and say, look at these you know, indigenous people and their bad habits. And I would never want to do a story like that. But I did start having more interest in the story when I found out that there were many indigenous women themselves who were uh, rebelling against uh, these forced marriages and uh, focused on interviewing um, them and telling their, their stories or them telling their own stories about what they are doing to try to put an end to these forced marriages uh, in indigenous communities in the mountains of Guerrero um, and seeing how they met one woman who um, 
when she was uh, forced to get married very young. And then in the end, her husband actually divorced her, uh, but wanted her family, uh, the family of the husband sued her saying that she needed to pay back the money that was spent at the wedding. Um, And she had a dream to become a lawyer and help other women like her get out of those circumstances. Um, And then there are women all across uh, Guerrero, both in uh, Acapulco and Chilpancingo that I found that had uh, escaped from these kinds of uh, forced marriages. And then we're also helping women in uh, the cities, many who came from indigenous communities and don't really have uh, support networks in these cities and help them also uh, denounce domestic violence and uh, any other kind of gender-based violence that they face. So those are some of the other stories that I have reported on in Guerrero. I could go on and on. I just uh, went, finally, I was just in um, Cacahuatapec, which is part of Acapulco, um, and is a community that is a clear example of what happens when a mega project uh, comes in and really divides the community. They want to build a dam there. The community has been fighting the dam on the uh, Rio Papagayo for the past 20 years. Um, they have not built the dam because of the resistance from the community, and but this still there's still the concession to build the dam, and they really want it to be canceled. But in that time, it really has divided the community. Over a dozen people have been killed, and um, I actually went to that community not to focus on the story of the dam, but instead to focus on what happens when uh, children don't have access to school, don't have internet, and uh, barely have television. Uh, which is how Mexico is broadcasting uh, classes now, as there are no classes in person in all of Mexico during uh, the pandemic. And so I went to do a story focused on what the uh, children are doing in that area and how they are studying or how difficult it is for them. Wow. Wow. That's a a tremendously wide-ranging list of experiences that you've had, stories that you've been able to tell Start. I mean, going back to 2008 and then 2011 with the with the with the murder of the two students, Aysenapa. Then, and with the relationships that you've since developed with the with the with with the families and uh, other students um, and teachers, the school. I mean, it's it's amazing to see um, what your what your experiences have brought you, and it's exciting to see where that goes. We're hoping this documentary comes out soon. We would love to hear more about. Um, the, 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 the formations of uh, your, this hitman, the, the, the woman, uh, day labor, and, um, yes, the connection between fentanyl and the work that Noria has done as well. I'm so glad you made that connection. Um, wow, this is, this is quite the start of the thing. So let's jump into the meat of the conversation so we can highlight your, your work that we're here to talk about today. Um, so to, to situate the audience. Um, in, um, into the moment um, so they understand what happened six years ago, September 26th. Tell us what happened or what you knew what happened September 26th, 2014, when you began um, working on uh, this case. Sure. Um, on September 26, 2014, a group of students from the Ayotzinapa Teachers College uh, located in Tixla, Guerrero, traveled to the city of Iguala, to commandeer buses, uh, something that seems very strange, especially to people in the United States. That's what is commandeering buses means. And it's because the students at their school, uh, there's very little resources and they don't actually have their own buses or transportation. And it's they have these um, 
informal agreements with bus companies where the students can arrive to a commercial bus uh, company and say, hey, can you lend us the bus for a few days? And the bus company will actually lend the bus with the driver as long as the students take good care of it. Um, And this was a week before the protest um, and the commemoration of a massacre that occurred in 1968 in the uh, Tlatelolco massacre and occurred in Mexico City. And every year, uh, the Ayutzinapa students and uh, other students from uh, other normal schools from the Federation of Campesino and Indigenous Students, uh, I'm sorry, Federation of uh Campesino and Socialist students of Mexico that Fexum would travel to Mexico City. So on the night of the the 26th, the Ayutzinapa students had gotten to Iguala to see if they could commandeer buses, which they would later use the week after on October 2nd to be able to travel to the protests in Mexico City. Um, often people say they were on their way to protest at that time, which is not correct. Um, but anyways, back to uh, they were traveling to Iguala and uh, a series of attacks occurred after they commandeered these buses where they were not allowed to leave the city. They were in five different buses and they were attacked um, in many different points. There was actually 10 different attacks that night, both involving uh, municipal police, uh, not only from Iguala, but also uh, believed to be from Cocula and other um neighboring towns in that area. And also there were federal police present, uh, the army president present. Um, and in the end, the students, there were 43 students that were uh, taken away by the police. And there were three students that were killed. Uh, there was one student, Aldo, who got a bullet in the head and is in a coma to the date, uh, six years later. And then there were also three uh other people that were killed, a soccer player on a soccer, on a bus leaving a soccer match, the driver of the soccer team, and a woman passerby. Um, so this was a night of extreme violence. It wasn't just one attack, as many people think. It was 10 attacks. There was a lot of coordination between all kinds of state forces. All of this information I'm saying right now is not what I knew at the beginning, you know, and I think it's important to know there's still many things we don't know. What I did know at the beginning when I started reporting on it a day after the attacks was that 57 students uh, were missing. Um, that numerous people had been killed and they really didn't know what was happening. Um, I will say at that time, I even though I had been the Guerrero, I still didn't have all that many connections. And I, the first few days was interested in going, but was a little scared to go by myself, didn't have anyone to go with. So I did spend a few uh, weeks trying to convince other reporters to go with me. And uh, everyone said, oh yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow. And they kept putting it off in the end. I just said, okay, I'm just going to go by myself because no one would go with me. So no one would go with me. So I decided to go by myself. And I actually uh, lived at the school. At the time I worked with like a community media collective uh, called Supersiones. And we were helping the students with a community radio station they had. So I lived at the school and I would travel with the students and the families to all of the actions they would take. And they were uh, engaging in direct actions all the time, you know, going and protesting at the, at, um, government palaces, at the court, the military cartels, at, uh, going, uh, one of the things that impacted me the most was traveling with the families on a caravan where they went to all of the towns in Guerrero, where the disappeared students came from, where, and so there it was when you realized it wasn't that they just disappeared the sun of someone, but they did disappeared the son of a whole village where the teachers came out, the teachers that this person had had their whole lives, their neighbors, their brothers, their sisters. And you could see really the impact of this enforced disappearance on entire communities. Um, and it really seemed like a time when something was going to change in Guerrero. Uh, at that time, there was, I think, over a 
at least over 50, if not more, um, town halls were taken over by activists in solidarity with the families and demanding that they find the 43 students. Um, and in some places, they were starting to have uh, community assemblies and saying that they wanted to change the government and uh, did not believe in political parties. So it really seemed like uh, it was this moment as people who I interviewed said the la gota que derramó el vaso or the last straw um, where something was going to change in Guerrero. Um, sadly, I would say after all of these years, that change did not come about and probably 43 students could be disappeared tomorrow and uh, the, the same kind of impunity and violence still exist. Um, but at that time, it was really a, a powerful moment. And so I... Uh, documented all of this for many months, but mostly for international outlets that I work for, like uh, AJ Plus of Al Jazeera and Vice News and BBC and uh, Waging Not Violence and a whole uh, range of outlets. But I did feel that not a single outlet or a single report I did could really capture the true essence of what a disappearance does to a family member, like how it just, it eats at them. It eats at their core and that they can't, uh, the families didn't even want to eat or drink because they don't know if their children are eating or drinking. They don't want to sleep because they don't know if their disappeared sons are sleeping. Um, and so, and then this constant torture of the government saying that they then found the bodies in this hillside or then they found them burned in a garbage dump even though there was no scientific proof that they were their students uh burned in this garbage dump and so just seeing constantly the impact that this had on the families and i also did realize that many of the books and documentaries that were coming out were a lot more focused on the students both the students that were disappeared a little focused on the school and also focused on what really went down that night. And there was very few uh, books or even documentaries focused on the parents themselves. So that was why I wanted to um, do a longer project and one that would really focus on this journey of the parents. Um, and that is when it came to me the idea to do a graphic novel. I've always really liked graphic novels. Um, when I was a college dropout in like 2000, I used I moved to Pittsburgh and just hung out at the library all the time, which had the first adult graphic novel collection in the U.S. And I was amazed at how, how many things I could read and learn about uh, about history around the world. I read Joe Sacco and learned about Bosnia and Serbia, and then reading. Um, about uh, Marjan Satrapi and Persepolis and Mouse. And I got really obsessed with graphic novels. But then later on, after many years of living in Mexico, I must say that I forgot they existed because Mexico has many graphic traditions and it has comics and political cartoons, but it doesn't really have graphic novels in a kind of journalist or historical sense. So I forgot they existed until then. I saw a tweet about a graphic novel about a conflict in Africa and it like a light bulb went in my head and I was like, this is what I need to do. I need to do a graphic novel about Ayutinapa, not just to do um, something different than what everyone else is doing. But also I thought that this would be what would interest readers in the United States and around the world to know more about this case that maybe they weren't interested in it. But because it's a graphic novel, they'd be more interested. But then that's when I realized we did first uh, like a zine version that we self-published. Uh, we did an offset print. And with that uh, version, I distributed it here in Mexico and saw that actually there was tons of interest 
in doing, uh, in telling these kinds of stories in an illustrated manner. And uh, both the families themselves and the students were very interested. And there's one mother, Minerva Bello, from the town of Omiapa Guerrero. And she told me that she was really she really liked it because she couldn't uh, read well and that she had not even gone and go to middle school. But so she couldn't understand these like thick reports that came out about the case, but that she did like seeing the drawings of our uh, zine and that she could understand it more. And I dedicate the book to her, which unfortunately she never got to see because she died both of cancer and the anguish of not knowing where where her son is, uh, her disappeared son, Everardo Gonzalez. But um, that was when I realized that really there is a large audience in Mexico for graphic novels. And that's when uh, shortly after we were able to uh, speak with Penguin Random House, who decided to publish the book here in Mexico. And then it was it got to be distributed all across Mexico and also all across the world. That is tremendous. Uh the levels that you that you present there, your way to <clears throat> to to come to the graphic novel in particular, uh, the fact that it's not only accessible but it's 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 popular, um, and that's 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 amazing. Uh, it seems like also you've you've learned so much since 2014, since you know the day after when you you started um, looking into into the the atrocity and your experiences there since they've unfolded. Um, and it's, a, it's incredible how you, how you described how it's not just the disappearance of a son for a family, but that of a, of a village, an entire region at times. Um, and I'm, it's amazing how you focused on the parents. Could you tell us a little bit more about your focusing on the parents um, and then your focus on mothers in particular, uh, and how you what you learned about the case um, as you started uh, investigating more, and then also started writing the book as well. Um, in particular, since you had that aha moment, which was that you got to share with us today. Sure. The um, I focus a lot of the stories told through the eyes and through the words of Maria de Jesus La Tempa. Uh, who is a mother of Jose Eduardo Bartolo Tlatempa um, from Tixla Guerrero, which is, uh, she lives actually very close to where the school is. Um, And she was one of the first mothers to speak to me when I was at the school. Um, There was a lot of apprehension towards the press and also of the families of of repression, um, what could happen to them, threats, et cetera. So many didn't want to actually speak with the press. Um, And she uh, but noticing that I was a foreigner, spoke to me and was like, where are you from? And I told her I was from New York. And she was like, we want our story to get out there. We want uh, other countries to know what's going on here because here there'll never be justice. She had it like it was very clear to her from early on that if this story just remained in Mexico, that there would not be justice for them and for their uh, for their sons. Um, and so early on, I started speaking more with her. Um, and then it was on a day, there were elections in June of 2015, elections in Guerrero, and the families called for a boycott of the elections because it was how can you you know go about as business as normal if our sons are still disappeared? There's you know hundreds of people disappeared in Guerrero and you just want to go on with uh, having the same political parties here. And so uh, there was this moment, the students uh, were were boycotting elections and the families and they were burning the ballots. I mean, it was very, very intense moments. And I remember the police had attacked 
the students on this highway as they were trying to go to Chilpancingo, um, and the parents also uh, to to protest. And shortly after that, um, Maria was in the middle of the highway, and I just asked her, you know, what uh, I was uh, doing a video for Al Jazeera, and I recorded her asking her what's going on, and she just said. Um, that she asked, why is it that burning a ballot is a crime, but disappearing a person is not a crime? Why did they attack our children? What did they do? And she said it just with such eloquence um, and such conviction that it was like, well, the second light bulb went off in my head at that moment that I was like, she needs to be the main character of my book. Um, and that she uh, really can, can just tell the story of the journey of a mother and all that, that, she has done for her son. And I think for me, I'm not, I don't have children. Um, and so I don't, I have, don't have that experience of all that you invest in your life from, you know, from before they're born to the moment you're able to send them to school and how hard you work to be able to send them to school. And just seeing, I remember speaking with her and her showing me photos of him from his whole life and how she, the doctors had told her she wasn't even going to be able to have uh, children and then he was born and how she had wanted to become an English teacher and was studying to become one, but really was unable to uh, continue with her, her education. Um, but she's, uh, even because of lack of formal education, she's a, a very educated woman, speaks very articulately and really uh, knew that while she couldn't have access to higher education, wanted her children to have uh, access. Um, and so I started to spend more more time with her and also just saw how before she worked as a as a street vendor, she sold uh, corn on the cob, elotes, and she sold Avon products. And then she became kind of like there's a voice of the movement. Um, in the beginning, it was mostly male voices and fathers. And as time went on, you could see that the mothers started playing a more central role. And then she actually went to the UN to speak at an indigenous Congress on uh, the disappeared students and what had happened because uh, many of the students are from indigenous families. Um, herself from from indigenous family and about um, she spoke there and then also has traveled across Europe and uh, speaking about you know the case of Ayotzinapa and she uh, we maintain a, a tight relationship I just uh, visited her last week in in her house um, in Tixla and got to uh, uh, see both of her students or both of her, her children studying on their on their computers since they don't have classes in, in person. And uh, she uh, one thing that really uh, affected me, she showed me this the sneakers of her son, you know, and she has his sneakers waiting for him to come home and his laptop, um, hoping that that someday he will come home soon. Uh, and she um, just also talked about how she really loved the book and how it helps other people understand the case and how people always ask her to, to if she could lend it. And she says, no, if I lend it, they'll never give it back. But um, she, what, one thing that she has liked is that also uh, the book helps keep the case in the press. You know, that people, every time that I am interviewed about the book, that it reminds people that this is still an open case, that the students are still disappeared. They still don't know anything about their whereabouts six years later, and that the book helps uh, keep the case, uh, you know, keep people talking about the case. Wow. That's uh that's tremendous. Um, um, and at her quote, why is burning a, a ballot a crime when disappearances aren't? I mean, that's, that speaks volume. Um, the way you focus on her in the book is, 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 a, is a game changer. I feel like in the graphic novel 
um, realm. So it's really cool how it inspired you. And I feel like you might inspire other forms of graphic novels from the perspective that you did with um, focusing on uh, Maria de Jesus. But she wasn't the only parent that you focused on. Can you tell us a little bit more? Sure. I also focus on another father, um, Don Benito Guerrero. Um, and I focused on him is there's also a reality when you're reporting any tragedy or any events that you as a person have a, a certain connection to other people, you know? So maybe there's 43 families and I know all of the families. And I recently on the anniversary, the sixth anniversary was finally able to give every single family, uh, their copy of the book because, because of the pandemic, it was hard to see them before. And an event we had with the families was canceled. Um, but I finally got to give each one, uh, the book, but, but there are some families, of course, that, uh, myself as a journalist, uh, builds up more of a relationship with. Um, and so the family Guerrero, they're from Omiapa, uh, which is like um, on the outskirts of Tixla, a very rural area. It's uh, where they produce mezcal. It's beautiful. Um, the mezcal is very good. We used to sell it actually to finance the book because until it was picked up by Penguin Random House, it was always a self-financed uh, project that we also never wanted to get any money from the government uh, due to that this is about government repression. And while there is a lot of financing of the arts in Mexico from the government, we decided that we did not want that financing. Um, and so we used to sell mezcal from this town <laughs> the book. Um, but anyways, back to uh, Don Benito. And so I uh, met him through another family that were actually teachers of, uh, or they were coaches of basketball at the school and they would do basketball tournaments in small towns. And also, uh, they helped organize an event with where the students dressed up as clowns to bring awareness, uh, to the disappeared students. That is also in the book that, that this clown, uh, episode, but when, um, this family that did these events of the clowns, and the basketball, they brought me to the town of Omiapa. And this was a moment when very few families would allow any reporters to go to their homes, you know. And uh, when they opened up their home to me, and there are three families in this town that had disappeared students in a very small town. And uh, one thing that really struck me about uh, Don Benito was that not only was his son disappeared, but that they had... Uh, murdered him in the media an extra time more than all of, like what the media had said about all the other students because they had believed that his son was uh the student whose face had been ripped off uh which had uh, was actually Julio Cesar Mondragon but um they had told him that it was his son Giovanni and he had to go to the morgue and since the uh, body had no face. He couldn't tell because it really looked part parts, the height, the color of the skin did look as if it was his son and that he had to hug this, this body in front of him and try to determine if it was his son. And, and by hugging him, he said, this is not my son. And he went back and he told everyone that it was not his son. And they insisted again, no, 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 it is your son. He had to go back another time. And at that time, when he went to the morgue again, um, the wife of Julio Cesar Mandragon, who had uh, uh, just had a daughter that was a week old, uh, who uh, or a few days old, was there. And she said, it's not your son, it's my husband. Um, and so that was this moment where he felt this, you know, this relief, very sad that it was, of course, this woman's husband, that it was not her, his son. Um, and I think that story was just so just so touching and so horrible. I mean, something that we hope no one ever has to do is the, to hug 
a dead body to try to determine if it's your loved one or not, or if it's your son or not. Um, and then, uh, started, uh, documenting closer his story. Also, I think it just re- represents all of, uh, he himself had been a migrant in the U S a lot of the, um, Giovanni's other brothers had been migrants in the U S and, uh, that just showing that like Ayutzinapa is one of the few alternatives that exist for uh, young men in Guerrero to study. And that many of them, one of the other alternatives was migrating to the United States and working construction or working in other, you know, undocumented labor. So uh, I just think that his story represented a lot. And then um, as time went on, there were other developments that were focused exactly on his son, that they believed that they found a bone that belonged to him, which was proven that that, that was not true, just the possibility existed. So I think it just also showed kind of this emotional torture of the government, of, of their misinformation and how it affected um his family. And then another thing is when doing the graphic novel, you need to continually... Uh, when writing the script, I needed to go back and get more and more details all the time. And actually where they live, there's no phone service, uh, no internet. Now now there is six years later, but at the time there was not. And so uh, his daughter, Anayeli, uh, sister of uh, Giovanni, who is also a character in the book, she really helped me a lot because she lived in Tixla and had phone service. So she would assist me with a lot of the details that I needed about, you know, when they first got these phone calls, how they went to uh, searching for uh, her brother. And uh, so she helped me uh, reconstruct a lot of what had happened in, in the case of her brother. Wow. Wow. That is such a salient point, um, you know, highlighting how Don Benito had to experience the death of his son twice. I feel like that's a narrative we've oftentimes heard. And the history of Guerrero, the death of Juan Escudero twice. There's that book has come out. The death of Vincente Guerrero twice. You know that that book is yet to be written on. You know the hero of Tixla. Um, that's that's. I mean, it's hard to re- it's hard to know how to respond um, uh, to to something like that and to bring that attention um, to um, to to so many audiences um, is tremendous. Um, I do have a question how about your experience in community media and radio because that's that's was your start and it also seemed like it had a really um, important way or a really important um, it was an important avenue for you as you started um, working in Ayotzinapa. How did it did it unfold in any different ways as you started writing the book? Is it do you still have connections through community media and radio today? Um, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think just to give a go, go further back, a slight anecdote that I actually yeah. never studied journalism. I uh, got, I became a journalist because of community radio that I was a late night, uh, punk rock and hip hop music DJ. Um, and I used to talk about politics a lot on my show, which was like a community university station where I was not a student. I was just a community member. But uh, and the director of the station said, if you're going to talk about politics all the time, why don't you just get a, a news show? And I said, OK, fine. Give me one. Um, and so that's how that was back in, I think, 2003. So that's uh, or 2004 around there. That's actually how I became a journalist was through community radio and how it learned um over the years, how to, to be a better journalist. And then um, I think that, that a difference in community media is that you are much more connected with social movements and you see it as a way to help social movements. And I think while I now work uh, this 
uh, book is, you know, it is published by Penguin Random House, but it was an, uh, originally, it's not a project of Penguin Random House. It was a, an autonomous uh, project, a collective that we all worked together as a team, myself and Anai and Marco. And before there were other members of, of this uh, collective uh, process. And uh, I think it's a matter of doing something that you're not just doing it as a as a job, you know, so in community media, many years, it was never, I never got a uh, payment. I worked, uh, many, when I worked in community media, I worked as a bike mechanic actually to pay my rent and, uh, community media was what I did as a, as a passion. And then, um, now today I am paid to be a journalist, uh, a freelance journalist, but I still, uh, the book, many people think that, you know, oh, we publish this book and it's going around the world or making all this money off of it. Uh, that is not true. <laughs> we, uh, for the people that publish books, you know, that you actually don't make very much money, if any at all. And actually we're in debt over the book, not, not making money off of it, actually the, the opposite. But I would say is that the book was my passion where I, financed it for years with my other journalist work and saw it as kind of a community media project um, with this uh, necessity to tell this story and to tell it from like a very close angle and to tell it from as a way that I am accompanying the families, you know, and I think it's always, uh, it also has to do with the way at which you approach um, the victims of violence, you know, whereas I think there's a moment when I was at the school where uh, Uriel, who, who's in the book uh, as a survivor, I remember that um, he was telling a story or, or he was at a, a protest at the school or like a rally and he collapsed in the middle and just started crying and left the stage. And uh, what most media outlets did was follow him off the stage and shove cameras in his face as he was crying and try to get him to speak. Um, and I just decided to not even go there because that's it. if he's uh, stepping off stage just because he doesn't want to talk, why would media outlet follow him? So I think it's a lot about what you decide to report on and how you approach uh, those that are victims of this violence. And I think if you, uh, in community media, you always see yourself as not wanting, you know, as one kind of like the extended communication arm of a social movement, which I don't, I think now as I'm more in journalist world, I don't necessarily uh, see myself as that, but do see the work I do that it is uh, it is helping the social movements that I'm not ever trying to pretend to be objective because I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying, oh, I want to tell the the full story and why did the police open fire that night, which there are useful work like that. I know in this series you've interviewed also um, Daniel Herrera, you know, who wrote La Tropa, which is about why do soldiers open, you know, why do they kill? So I do think it is valuable to have that perspective, but that's generally not the perspective that I focus on. Um, and also I think back to uh, the importance, I think, of community media is trying like getting this information to people and not focused on it uh being part of the interest of a media outlet that you know makes money off of subscribers or makes money off of uh you know selling the newspaper or people watching television that it's really just more i wanted to do this book to get this message out and not be in the interest in like the financial interest of anyone and just one Final anecdote of uh, community radio shortly. The book came out in December last year. Um, it was fully released this year in 2020, but uh, it was uh, had been printed last year. And I went to do a workshop in 
the community of Sochislawaka, uh, Guerrero, which is a coastal mountain community. Um, and I presented the book in their radio, in Radio Nomda, in their anniversary. And as I was presenting the book, someone was live interpreting it in Amusco, the local indigenous language there. Um, and I spoke about how young people had been really interested in the book and had wanted to read the story when they don't normally like reading books. And shortly after, father, a father came to the radio station presentation where I was and said that he wanted to buy the book for his children. So that was amazing. He had heard it in Amusco on the radio, on the radio and then come and, and bought the book. Um, so that was a, a really sweet community radio story and how it's uh, also can share uh, the graphic novel, even though you can't see the, the images on community radio, but still share it that way. Wow, that that wow to be presented and <laughs> to be heard over in a Musco, um, and then to have that interaction with a parent. I mean, you've talked about access on so many different levels. You've really focused on like how the community has has shaped this the, your your aesthetic going into the book, but then the book's formation from being financed by by Mescal to being fine or being by having the engines, um, uh, cre- engines being the the the, the families in Tixla. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really such an honor to have you today because I really feel like this perspective not only has sh- shaped the, the discourse around Itzanapa, but I mean, even wider discourses. I mean, your perspective in working in Teen Vogue for the last few years, is, it, you've been fundamental on those the, the shift in, in the p- political conversation that that amazing uh, uh, outlet is having right now. I mean, and not to mention Vice and BBC, but Teen Vogue comes to, to mind. I honestly don't think we'd be having this conversation today if I wouldn't have met you years ago over Chilaquiles talking about um, graphic novels. And because, uh, I mean, I feel like you've inspired, or you know, how people have these conversations and, and how they are started with the community in mind. Um, it's just, just, and then just the way you've just been, just I, I feel like listeners, I hope you're taking some of this inspiration. She's been so open, honest from your relationship with college, your relationship to the study of journalism, but to be where you are today and to have influenced different platforms. It's, it's a true pleasure to be here. So we end on your book, which I, in terms of terms of breath, is coming out in Norwegian soon. Is that correct? Correct. It just came out in Norwegian. I actually just did a presentation before speaking with you for a class in, in Norway. I don't speak Norwegian. I spoke in English. <laughs> um, but, uh, and it's amazing that it, it came out in uh, Norway because um, there have been delegations over the years of human rights activists in Norway who have come to Mexico and, uh, you know, participated in trying to uh, demand justice, both for the case of the 43 students in other cases, uh, you know, of indigenous struggles, et cetera. And so some people that had participated in some of these delegations um I knew, and also through community media, knew them. And they reached out to me to say that they are starting a new uh, publishing um, uh, outlet in publishing outlet. That's not the word, but that's fine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and the, the, the Spanish in the head. But anyways, the, um, so they, this, this new publisher that will focus on publishing material from Latin America in uh, Norwegian. And so they want to know if they could, uh, reproduce my book. And so it was funny because I had, uh, am currently working on finishing the translation in English. And it's actually very difficult to translate because, uh, these students use lots of regional terms and even basic things like 
tía, when the students speak to the mothers of uh, Ayutzinapa, they refer to them as tía because that is an uh, aunt in Spanish, but it's not, they're not their aunts, but they are their aunts because they see them as, you know, their own family members. Um, and so then it's like, how do you translate that? Because if I just put aunt in English, they probably don't, no one will understand that. So translating has been very difficult for me in English. Um, and then it's, it's ironic because they, they translated it a lot faster in Norwegian and the books are already out and circulating around Norway. Um, but yeah, we hope the English version hopefully will come out next year. Um, and then also, uh, I am interested in publishing a Nahuatl version, an indigenous language here in Mexico, um, and hopefully many other languages. Uh, we're going to present it soon in a, a graphic novel festival in France via Zoom, of course, but, uh, you know, and activities, uh, because in, in France, there's a lot of uh, journalistic and, and historical graphic novels. Um, but returning back to, uh, oh, I guess just mentioning Teen Vogue, it is, I have written uh, for Teen Vogue over the years, and it's amazing, um, you know, that I, uh, as many young adolescent girls in the U.S., uh, growing up read magazines like Sassy or Seventeen, and then at some point you're like, ah, this is garbage. I don't want to read this anymore. Um, but it never had really those kind of political articles, which now when I look at Teen Vogue, and I remember when my first article came out on uh, on disappearances, it was uh, the same day, I think, as the Met Gala. You know, so it was like all these articles about the Met Gala uh, and, you know, fashion. And then right next to it, a story of mine about three film students who had been kidnapped and disappeared, um, which was my first article that I wrote for Teen Vogue. And it was like fascinating to me that th this article could get out on that platform and that they were even interested in it. Um, and I think just important to mention also this case of these three students because uh, they were three film students who were kidnapped and then the government had declared that they were all dissolved in acid and that there was no proof. I mean, no, no, that there was that the case was over. There was no proof that they were dissolved in acid besides one drop of blood, which obviously does not prove that you were dissolved in acid. Um, and I just saw how so many media outlets uh, just took the government declaration as to be the truth. And uh, there was very little uh, news about them. And even to the day, no one ever talks about this case. Um, and it was very sad to see that after Ayutzinapa, where we saw that the government had made declarations that these students were uh, burned to death in a garbage dump, and then it was proven to not be true, that this, quote, uh, historic truth was not actually a uh, historic truth, um, to see that just a few years later, a similar case happened with fewer students, but that the government once again made declarations and the media all repeated these declarations um, and then the case was forgotten. So that was one of the stories I wrote in, in Teen Vogue. But I think I'm continually trying to uh, criticize what is printed in the media because uh, another story, which is uh, with uh, Don Benito, as I mentioned, that they mentioned... Um, said that the a bone that was found belonged to his son, but it turned out that it could just it exist the possibility that it belongs to his son, not that it, there is a high probability. Um, and when I went back and looked at the dates of the media um, uh, that came out about it, all of them said, oh, you know, another student identified him though that there was no proof of that. So it's really uh, the graphic novel also so is an indictment of all of this like really sloppy and bad reporting that goes on about these cases. And that really uh, uplifts the voice of the government and does not uplift the voice of the families and the victims, which is what I try to do. You're, you're not trying, you're doing it. I, we are, that's, I mean, that's why we're having this conversation. The Noria violence takes place series is trying to focus on, um, 
presenting more locally sourced um, interpretations of how violence takes place. It takes, you know, it takes location. Um, it takes specificity. It takes experience on the ground to tell these stories. And you are an, an exemplar of that. And I was going to ask you if you had a final point. And if you do, you please can share it. But you have already ended on such a lovely one. So I'll let you choose on that one. Sure. I think I would like to say that all that I have learned in all these years, you know, that yes. I have learned from the families and I have learned from the students and all of the people who have opened their homes to me. Um, and I think it's, you know, sometimes I think uh, what's common among those of us who report on such violence all the time is insomnia. And I definitely do have, that's one of, I think, the the worst effects on, on me personally that I've had over these years. But sometimes when I think that I can't, you know, it's the middle of the night and I can't sleep. And I think, but I know where my family members are. And I just think of that horrible, those horrible moments of being, you know, every single night of your life, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you don't know where your son is, you know? And so I think one thing people always say, uh, those that know me, and I don't think perhaps this comes across fully in this interview, is that I'm a very joyful, happy person. And I'm always smiling um, and making jokes. And people ask, how can I do that uh, when I work on such violent issues. And one is, I think it's just my nature, but the other is I feel like it's a responsibility of mine that if I um, am uh, always asking people to share so many stories with me that I feel that I need to give something back to them and not just with the work that I do, because that I am of course giving back with a book and with reports, et cetera. But I think just on a, on a human level, one of the things that I try to give back is joy um, and that they feel that someone is there and someone cares about them and someone uh, is listening to them. And that, uh, you know, there's moments that I can make them smile because you can't just, even though your son has disappeared, it doesn't mean that you're crying 24 hours a day. You might be crying 23 hours a day, but that there are moments, you know, when, when uh, there can be a little bit of joy in life. So that's one thing that I always try to, to give back to the families and all the people that I, that I interview about these, uh, you know, horrible tragedies that uh, occur so frequently in Mexico. Well, thank you for sharing that joy, Andalusia. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time today. It was a pleasure having you. Um, and we can't wait for your documentary to come out. We can't wait to see this book in English um, to get it to more broader audiences and keep um, pushing the good work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And if anyone's interested in getting the book, you can actually just go to the Penguin Random House page and look for Vivo Celestio Veron, and we'll have all the links where you could get it from Indie Bound, from Hudson Booksellers, from uh, places that we don't like, but they also do sell the book like Walmart, Amazon, Target, <laughs> and then Powell's. And uh, in New Mexico, you could get it basically at any uh, bookstore and actually um, more independent bookstores in the U.S. are starting to uh, carry it um, and hopefully soon will come out in English. So thanks so much for uh, this interview. And if people want to follow my work, they can follow me at Andala Lucha, um, and that's on Twitter and Instagram. And then the uh, graphic novel also has uh, accounts, which is Alive You Took Them, um, both on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And thank you so much, Jason, for, for taking the time to speak with me and inviting me. And I'm always inspired by your work. So it's been an honor to be able to, to speak with you today. Uh, thank you. Thank you, too kind. I remember when your book came out in Mexico City. I remember being there. And uh, it's you, if you're in for a treat, if you haven't read it yet, uh, whoever, listeners, you're in for a treat. 
You have a good rest of your day, Andalusia. Okay, thank you. Have a good day.